0: I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog, and I'm here with none other than Sean Latimer. Hello. Who promised that he would not fall asleep on this podcast because uh, he is going to be using this article to help him fall asleep at night. Hi, I'm back, and I will not fall asleep. Uh, it's funny because I, when I ended the article, I wrote in there, I was like, thank you. Thank you, readers, for your patience. Yeah, I like
1: the and enough is enough. I was like, oh, how
0: is he going to tie this in? And I'm like, oh, he's just saying he's done. <laughs> yeah. It's just um, I got caught up in the topic because, uh, well, this week, I'll tell the listeners, I wrote about interest rates. And uh, to me, it's interesting. And I understand that the uh, common person passing by, this will probably be Too much. But what fascinates me, and I'm okay with you calling me a financial nerd, uh, is that how interrelated interest rates are to all things. And I believe, again, nobody has to agree with me, but I believe that when people have an understanding of how that works, I think it should relieve some anxiety when they see how their investments behave. Because if the behavior should be expected, based on what is happening, X, Y, Z, I've got to think that knowledge gives some sort of burden relief. Did you get what I meant by that when I was writing about it or no?
1: Yeah, it, I think that makes a lot of sense. If people understand why something's happening, it's so much easier for them to digest. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, you know, oh, I'm sure the market's you know, choppy, my account's way down, and then they, they will tie it to something that's completely unrelated you know that like something scary that they saw in the news and and it it's not funny but you kind of sit there and by unpacking and educating it does make it easier for them to digest.
0: Yeah this idea of can you create a cause and effect relationship? I joked around at the end of the article I talked about going into a new house, maybe you're at Air- Airbnb, and you hit a light switch. And you're like, what is this connected yeah. to? There's no light going on. And then maybe like a day later, you figure out it's like the uh, the outlet for the TV. And somebody's watching TV upstairs, and you're hitting a light switch, turning <laughs> on and off, frustrating somebody. But um, this idea of figuring out how things are connected, I, I think, is important. I opened up this article uh, kind of talking about this cartoonist, Rube Goldberg, uh, who was famous for writing – or not writing, drawing – these cartoons of uh, these complex machines and systems, as I'm sure you've seen, where dominoes are falling and marbles are moving and and pencils are dropping. Uh, and at the end of kind of this sequence of events, uh, some small task is completed. Yeah, like flips on the light switch or something. Yeah, something funny like that. And to me, that was like the most relatable thing when it came to interest rates. Because as this article can show with 2,000 words, Right. There is a level of complexity, but then there's the brass tax part that, um, you know, we have a friend you and I were at lunch with today talking about uh, buying a new home, and the mortgage he will get today is twice the size of- uh, Not percentage, not yeah, dollars. Yeah. But, but the interest rate is yeah. is twice what it was a year ago. So I think a fair question, if you're not a finance expert, is why? Go mm-hmm. Uh Go ahead.
1: I think it's, uh, you know, I made a joke that this topic is hard to talk about, but it is timely. I mean, I think it's common that people are talking about interest rates and mortgage rates and inflation. And so I I think it's necessary, even if it's hard to talk about. So you're backpedaling. You're not going to criticize me anymore. No, no, no. You didn't didn't tell the whole story. I said, wow, this article is difficult to talk about on podcast, but... I said, it's a really good topic.
0: Listeners, he said, this is one of the longest articles he have ever written, but it's going to make for the shortest podcast <laughs> yeah. we've ever talked about. <laughs> that is what I said. Yeah. So one thing that I, I thought about, kind of going back to this idea of Rube Goldberg and kind of these machines, uh, I thought about today, like, there's a lot of people that are like shaking their head, like, I mean, why is my bond portfolio so ugly? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not why I bought bonds. And what I'm sometimes reminding people is this is a rare event. This is one of the worst first halves of the year. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, Uh, for bonds in like the last 50 years. And then the next feeling is like, oh, that's unfortunate, right? But then the part you can explain is that there is this very clear relationship, like David Bonson likes to say, it's math, Uh, but there's a clear relationship between bond prices and interest rates. So the sequence of events that I, I tried to kind of portray here was... We all know that there's inflation right now. Uh, Why is there inflation? You can find 10 different reasons for 10 different people. But we won't talk about that right now. But there is inflation. So then the Federal Reserve wants to combat that inflation. So they use their tools. One of those tools is to raise interest rates. What interest rate do they have control over? They're the central bank, so they can control the rate that they lend to other banks. Now, when other banks pick up a new cost... They're going to pass that cost on to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So then you start to see this ripple effect of where interest rates rise. And if interest rates have risen 1.5%, that is going to have a negative impact on your bond prices. So again, I absolutely use a lot of finance terminology in here, but I wanted to break it down to a way that could be understood. So on that note, and again, I can't get around using this finance word, but you can One of the ways to kind of describe your bond portfolio is by what's called its duration. And all that means is how sensitive is this bond portfolio to a move in interest rates? So if you had a bond portfolio where you kind of went to your advisor and you said, hey, I don't totally know what this means, but what is the duration of my bond portfolio? And the advisor's like, oh, easy. It's seven. What that means is if interest rates go up 1%, your bond prices go down, seven percent. So guess what? If you're looking at a bond portfolio that's down seven percent for the year, your duration was probably seven, which means you probably had a handful of bonds that were four years, five years, a handful of bonds that were six years, 12 years, kind of blend that all together, It kind of gave that duration number. To me, that is comforting because it's like, oh, it's not like I, I made a mistake or I did something wrong. I just owned bonds with this sort of duration. And this is what happens when that particular domino falls.
1: Yeah, the duration is always a kind of a tough thing to explain, but it it does make sense that it's not exactly the uh, same as length and time duration, but it does somewhat correlate with that. But then the other, uh, there's only two levers you can pull, duration and credit. And I think credit's a lot easier for people to understand. Yeah, you
0: and I were in a meeting uh, Monday with uh, a fixed income manager, somebody who is a portfolio manager of bonds. And I don't know if you remember, but one of the things he said on the call, he says, a portfolio manager, I'm really careful to take risks around duration. Yeah. Because what he was saying is that knowing the movements up or down on interest rates is really difficult. Um, I wrote the DC Today last week, and one of the things I mentioned in there is that there is a, a piece of collateral – from uh, an investment firm that talks about, uh, they had like, I don't know what it was, like 30 years of data of economists guessing interest rates up or down. Yeah. And they were right 36% <laughs> of the time. And it's funny when something is only up or down, when you're guessing over the next six months, if you can't hit a coin flip and you're 36% right, uh, what I'm saying, it's very hard to predict interest rates. So, what this portfolio manager was telling us, he was like, hey, I I don't try to take risk with our clients' money and try to guess duration high or guess duration low. So what he was saying is they really look at underwriting. Uh, If there's only the two levers to pull, uh, he leaves the duration pretty close to kind of what the index is Mm -hmm. or or what his benchmark is. Uh, And then he uses his team to try to see if they can find value by going into bonds that might have a little bit lower credit quality where they feel like they can grab a little bit of an extra interest rate. That was an
1: interesting meeting, too, because he also talked a lot about how uh, because interest rates are rising, they don't have to go as low on the credit quality to get a similar yield. I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, no, it was huge because I remember him telling us as they're buying government treasuries and high-grade corporate bonds, he was saying they were pretty light on investment grade corporate bonds because they were waiting for more opportunities. But even with government treasuries right now, they were building portfolios in the three, three and a half percent range on yields. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, for, uh, again, as we joked about this article, it, there's a joke in the industry, like, oh man, don't get stuck at lunch with a fixed income manager. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it's like a, a boring topic, but, um, you can see the, the nuance and the intricacy of, of kind of even their profession. But I think as, uh, As somebody that's new to this stuff, I would say understanding how interest rates are interrelated is huge. Um, Understanding why your mortgage rate went up or like I wrote about a lot in the article, if you see yourself, if you buy a bond, you are the lender. Um, So if you're lending somebody money, if they change the terms of the agreement, uh, you're going to want to change the terms of the interest rate you expect. Mm-hmm. If the credit rating of the borrower is a little bit lower, you're going to want a higher interest rate. If they want to borrow the money for a little bit longer duration, you're going to want a little bit of higher interest rate. So then we broke down this idea. There was even an agreement you could make if you were going to get a fixed interest rate or a floating interest rate.
1: Yeah, and the general idea is uh, fixed might be seem more attractive at the time, but not if you're in an environment like this year where the rates are moving. And I think you put a chart in there that kind of illustrates the difference, right?
0: Yeah, I was actually surprised because I didn't know the exact numbers. I put in there for year to date the difference between a, you know a handful of floating rate bonds mm-hmm. that have a similar risk profile to these high yield fixed rate bonds. The, the fixed rate bonds were down 15.5% on the year, while the floating rate was only down 1%.
1: Yeah, this goes back to what you're just talking about that, uh, you know, what was it? Only 36% of economists can predict interest rates. Some people would say, well, wasn't it obvious that interest rates were going to
0: skyrocket in the first half of the year? No, I, I don't think it was. No, and that's what we always talk about with markets. It's never about good or bad, it's about uh, better than expected or yeah. worse than expected. So there probably was a general idea that in the COVID moment when interest rates on the 10-year treasury got below 1% that you'd probably think, hey, over time, those interest rates are probably going to rise. Yeah. But what people weren't really good at is saying, what are they going to do over the next six months? Because right. we know how markets work. Sometimes it's like two steps forward and three steps backwards or vice versa. So getting the sequence in the short term is impossible.
1: Yeah. And hasn't the Fed always, not always, but recently at least been kind of slow to move on interest rates? And when they did start increasing rates after, uh, I think it was uh, 2018, 19, Mm -hmm. they were really slow, like 25 basis points at a time. Everyone said they waited too long to do it. And then they went right back down to zero during the COVID moment, which kind of made sense. And then this has been a kind of different type of behavior that they're doing.
0: Not even the COVID moment. Remember in late 2018, kind of the the Q4 2018, uh, Powell started to raise rates. And then you saw, which we talked about in this article, I'll get to it, credit spreads blow out. Mm. Um, and then, again, I can't speak for why the Federal Reserve behaved the way that they did, but it almost felt like the market scared them a little bit. Yeah. So it wasn't even in the COVID moment. In 2019, they backed off and started lowering interest rates again. And that's where they began well they always catch a lot of criticism but the federal reserve says hey we have a we have a dual mandate our objective is to achieve these two things um high employment mm-hmm. and stable prices so people were asking at that moment wait,
1: wait employment's
0: yeah. good and prices are stable cuz remember at that point we weren't seeing inflation yet
1: uh, why are you doing this? It was really just that whipsaw in markets, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it in December or the end of the year went from up eight percent to down eight percent for the year?
0: Yeah, and then you saw it was actually down twenty percent that peaked to trough in two thousand eighteen, and then you saw what you know is often called the Santa Claus rally. Yeah. So I think it was the day after Christmas you started to see this big spike, and that was one of the moments where. We started getting used to, as investors, these quick recoveries, Mm -hmm. and that was obviously amplified in the uh, March of 2020 moment when you saw the markets go peak to trough down 36%, and then... I, I mean, we remember the news feed. Was it going to be a V-shaped recovery or a K-shaped yeah. <laughs> recovery? Or would it be like a Nike suit? Like all these different views. And ultimately, it was a V-shaped recovery really quickly. And that has placed people in a moment of like, hey, we're now seeing markets go into that bear market territory. Uh, are we going to see a quick pullback? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. And this recency bias that we're all um, – Uh, uh, What would be the word? We we all have. We all have those biases, right? Um, That is causing us to think like uh, a buy the dip mentality that uh, down 20% means uh, a great opportunity or a great entry point, which I'll say historically, there is some truth to that. But uh, I I read a report the other day that talked about here's all these different moments over the last two decades where it's down 20%. And the outcome over the next six months it was every direction. Yeah. So there was no trend you could find from it specifically.
1: There's a lot of funny memes. It's like, buy the dip. It's like, I did. It keeps dipping.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, one of the things we touched on here, and again, it's one of the things that interests me as a nerd. Uh, we, we've gone over this idea of fixed and floating and how those behave. The other thing we talked about was credit spreads. Uh, and that is not a common like coffee shop or bar conversation, but I think it's a That's important for our listeners to understand. And it's a really simple term. Once you understand it, all I'm saying is that we use a term in finance called the risk-free rate. uh, And that is when we're uh, referring to government treasuries. When we're referring to government treasuries, we are often talking about the 10-year treasury. So we like to, in finance, measure the difference between the risk-free rate and something like a junk bond. Right, We call that high-yield credit spreads. Mm-hmm. So if a junk bond pays 8% on average uh, and a 10-year treasury pays 3%, we would say the credit spread is 5%. What I mentioned in the article is that if I tell you a credit spread in just one certain time and place, it's it's meaningless. But if I start to describe it in the context of history and where credit spreads have been historically it starts to give you an idea of what sentiment is like. And again, that might be a stretch. You're like, man, Trevor, what are you talking about? But what I mean there is when credit spreads are tight, let's say a junk bond pays 5% and a government treasury pays 2%. That's a a 3% spread. What that is telling you uh, in context of history is that uh, investors are pretty, they have a a strong risk appetite.
1: Yeah, they're Uh, buying those junk bonds. Which is
0: ultimately bringing down the yield, right? 100, you're 100% right. And uh, there's more buyers than sellers, which means that they're. it's not that they're mispricing risk. Uh, they're just kind of apathetic to risk. Uh, now, what happens right now, what TV station isn't talking about a recession right now? Right. So what impact does that have on investors?
1: It makes them, it changes the sentiment and there's less
0: risk changes the sentiment. So what would you think? Credit spreads are going to be wide, and they right. are. Um, right now, credit spreads sit somewhere at like 5.25%. And again, uh, I put a, a chart in here, I believe, but you can look at that over the last 10 years, and you start to see the behavior of investors. Now, not to take this to even another level, but what would a contrarian investor do in a moment when those credit spreads are wide? Dump in junk bonds. Yeah, they would invest. Yeah, Right? Because- we see what we often call in, in finance like a reversion to the mean mm-hmm. is when there's more sellers than buyers. It can be an opportunistic moment to come in. Now, you, you don't want to take that truth too far. Because there's an opportunity cost or you could be on the wrong side of it. Yeah. So there's not only an opportunity cost, but it's all also the market's not stupid. So it when credit spreads are wide – Or like we've talked about in the past, when the yield curve inverts, the market, the general wisdom is kind of telling you there might be a recession on the horizon. And if there's a recession on the horizon, it probably means that there would be a rise in defaults. Right. In that space. In that space. Yeah. And if there's a rise in defaults, we know how that works when we're a lender. If we give 10 loans to lower credit quality folks and let's say, uh, each of those loans are, are we put 10% of our money in each loan and there's 10 of them mm-hmm. and they each pay 10%. Well, if one of those defaults, uh, it wipes out the returns of the aggregate of the rest. So again, that's why, uh, That's why we have a whole team. We have an investment committee. We hire analysts um, because we know that there's multiple signals going on and we're trying to see, hey, how does the whole picture fit together? But it it does take us back to that Rube Goldberg idea is that these are complex systems to get to a simple task. I I do think our everyday investor can't avoid interacting with interest rates. They can not avoid what their savings account is going to pay. They can not avoid what... Their new home purchase mortgage is going to be. They can avoid what their bonds are going to do and how they're going to perform. But I believe if they understand credit spreads and they understand how interest rates are priced based on risk, and if they understand that some rates are fixed and some rates are floating, I've got to think that that knowledge is power and it can get them to a place to say, oh, this is actually normal. This is how markets behave. Now, we might not have expected interest rates to rise one and a half percent aggressively and surprisingly, but I understand why then my portfolio reacts as such.
1: Yeah, I actually have have a question for you. So in the past, we've talked about, uh, you know, expense-based planning and using investment-grade bonds or treasuries as kind of that reserves portion. In a higher interest rate environment, does that change the thought process at all for you?
0: Tell me more. I, I want to answer the question, but I want to answer it the right yeah, way.
1: So in the past, we may allocate two to four years of living expenses in treasuries, right? Mm-hmm. And the purpose was at the time, you know, bonds didn't necessarily ha- uh, have a very attractive yield. We weren't using it as a return uh, bucket. I don't have a better word for it. But maybe if interest rates continue to rise and it is generating three or four percent, or uh, if, if maybe there's an attractive interest rate without uh, going too far down the credit quality, ladder, you know, uh, would that make it maybe change your thought process where you end up allocating more to fixed income than you have in the past?
0: Yes. Uh, You're 100% right. Uh, And I would. And I think that that is a new theory that I will have to go back to my clients and kind of explain what I mean by that. But what I think you're saying um, is that you come to a conclusion on the design of a portfolio based on the current environment you're in. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's this idea of relative value. Um, It is what is something worth compared to everything else in the portfolio. There's a way to do some kind of general valuation and compare things to another. Um, We could say that a stock and a bond is apples and oranges, or we could also look at them and juxtapose them against another and understand the risk characteristics and the return characteristics. There's not a perfect way to do this, but I'm going to give you a simple example that I think is aligned with what your question is. One way to understand what your stocks are going to give you in the future as a return, again, if you're an analyst and you're listening to this, I know this is imperfect. Um, I'm trying to give a general idea. Uh, what you can do is you can take the multiple on the stock market. So right now, stocks trade at 19 times earnings. We'll just use 20 because it makes the math a lot easier, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say they trade 20 times earnings. There's something called the earnings yield. All you do is inverse that. So you go 1 over 20. Another way to say one over 20 is 5%. So then you'd say, oh, I would expect the stock market's going to do 5% plus whatever the dividend yield is. Maybe the dividend yield sits right now at one and a half percent. Again, rough numbers. Then you would say, hey, the expected return is something like six and a half percent. But the standard deviation is going to be pretty high. Now, the old mantra was, Tina, that you were okay with the six and a half percent because there was no alternative. Mm -hmm. Well, now when you go into investment-grade corporate bonds, and you can get like 4.5%, and the spread between the expected return on a corporate bond and the equity tightens, it changes that dynamic. Yeah. Um, and it, it makes you look at other things like our group. We've looked at private loans and, and other opportunities to generate returns that look a lot more attractive now when market multiples are high and interest rates are higher. So I think that the conclusion you have to come to there, which is what I really like about our group, is our group is aware of the environment we're in. One of the criticisms I have against target date funds is that they're using like 50 years of data, but I'm not one to say this time is different, but we are in a different environment than we historically have been. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to account for that. So very long way to answer your question, but I think it's a really intelligent question, and I think investors should be thinking about that. I will say, from my perspective, and clients that I talk to know this, I am a lot more excited to talk about buying government treasuries in a client's cash account than I was a year ago. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, I, I talked to one client today, and uh, his ninety-year-old mother uh, building out a, a portfolio and an asset allocation. I'm a glutton for simplicity. And one of the ways that we built it out, again, not advice, right? This is customized and tailored to the person. But we were able to say like, hey, we're going to take one year in cash. And then we're going to buy a one-year treasury, a two-year treasury, three-year, four-year treasury, just a ladder, a mm-hmm. simple ladder. Uh, and the interest rate on that was pretty attractive. And again, I'm, I'm telling you the terminology we use in, in the industry, th- those are, are, are deemed as Risk-free rates, right? So it makes the financial plan really easy uh, when you can see those mature into cash. That's going to be spent for expenses, and from an expense-based planning standpoint, that's a whole lot better than when you're buying stuff that's doing one or two percent. Yeah, I bet it just it eases some of the
1: financial plan too. Because if cash is earning zero, and then all of a sudden that uh, you know reserves portion is earning something, that definitely helps.
0: And that's something, as you're describing, is significant, right? Um, we talked about mortgages doubling interest rates. That same concept goes across uh, the 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 whole interest rate spectrum. Mm-hmm. and again, going back to the idea of talking about private loans, uh, a lot of what we've engaged in in that space are floating rate, right So when we've talked to those managers recently, we're excited to see, hey, those rates are gonna float up, right? Um, and seeing the new yields and, and kind of what that compares to. So I think we covered most of the things. The last thing I'll touch on, it could have been its own article and I kind of just slapped it on at the end, but we talked about how interest rates impact bonds and mortgages and savings accounts. What's not always as intuitive is it always it always it also has an impact on stocks. So there is no perfect way to say this, uh, but David Bonson is a broken record where he will tell you what is the stock market, stock prices, they are the net present value of future cash flows. Again, what are stock prices? The net present value of future cash flows. To try to figure out what a stock's worth, you're you're trying to figure out what will that company earn in the future and how do I discount that to a a value that I would be able to pay today? Uh, What we've seen over the last... I don't know, five years or so, we've seen a lot of companies um, think about, um, you know, applications where you can have a taxi pick you up right now or deliver you a cheeseburger. And the the thesis behind a lot of those companies was what? Build up a huge user base, mm-hmm. uh, burn a lot of cash and monetize that user base at some point. And we saw the IPO market, um, private markets, Those unicorn type companies go through the roof. Now you're seeing a change in um, kind of language that they use. Uh, You heard uh, kind of those ride sharing companies say, "You know, we really should produce free cash flow." Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason that they're saying that is those assets have always been treated. uh, Again, big word, but I don't have a different. I don't have one to uh, to replace it with as long duration assets is that when you plug those stocks into your Excel document to find the discounted cash flow, you are willing to go out 20 years. You are willing to be patient for them to be successful. Uh, And now you're not as willing to be patient when interest rates are higher. Why? Because it means the debt that they have to pay is higher. Uh, And it also means that you're adjusting your modeling to figure out what the present value is. Now, you don't have to understand that intellectually. I I simply put a chart in here that showed you growth stocks versus value stocks on the year and they look a lot different what that's telling you is that growth stocks are a higher duration asset and that rise in interest rates is having a negative impact
1: That makes sense it, it, it's a headwind for them to have a higher expense for the debt so they're intuitively even though it's not going to grow as much or as fast
0: Yeah, and if you were sitting over the shoulder of one of our analysts right now, and they had that Excel document, and they were saying, hey, here's what we expect the next 10 years of growth, and then you say, hey, go ahead and adjust what the risk-free rate is, what they might call the discount rate, they make a change in there of 25 basis points. Uh, It makes a drastic change, the same way if you're doing a compound interest calculator. And you start kind of not, think about if you're doing a financial plan, Yeah, you notch up returns by 1% and all of a sudden somebody's heirs is getting another $10 million yeah. when you let it compound over 40 years or something like that. So Very true. Well, I think we've uh, covered a gamut of topics here and uh, I would encourage our listeners uh, that are still awake uh, to go read the article. And the, the big thing here is you can take the article as sections. Um, if you're interested in what fixed and floating rates or just equities, uh, you don't have to read it uh, uh, top to bottom. Uh, and then at the end, I mentioned you can email Tom at the dot com, T O M at the uh, We would welcome the opportunity to answer your questions and be a resource in any way that we can. We are believers that uh, as you get a better general understanding on how these mechanisms and machines work, uh, it should offer a little bit of anxiety relief. So, um, That's the hope, and uh, that's why we're here to educate, because we believe knowledge is power. So uh, go ahead and rate the podcast. Five stars are preferred. As I mentioned, you're welcome to email us, and then we will do our best to be back next week with more of our thoughts Thoughts on on money. money.
2: performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice.